is Happiness Solved with America's Happiness Coach, Sandy Scarlatta. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. I am so happy you're here. So before I introduce today's guest, I want to share with you my five habits for being happy. Number one, take care of yourself first. When you are constantly taking care of everyone else, it is critical that you take time to do something for yourself. And this may mean that you have to say no to somebody else. Number two, gratitude. Every morning, list everything you have to be grateful for. At any time during the day, you can press the reset button by focusing on all of your blessings and feel its loving embrace. It is the quickest way to shift your energy from negative to positive. Number three, forgiveness. Pay attention to your thoughts around every situation. If you're feeling anything but love, there is likely someone you need to forgive. Many times, we have to forgive ourselves as well. Remember, forgiving is all about setting you free from the negative feelings you're holding onto. Number four, shift your perspective. Your perspective is the lens in which you view the world. Your perspective becomes your perception, which turns into your beliefs. Then it influences your behavior, which ends up becoming your reality. Ask yourself, is there another way to see this situation? Most likely there is. And last, number five, trust with no expectations. Always trust that everything is going to work out exactly how it is supposed to. It always does. Just be sure not to attach any expectations to the outcome. Because worrying about anything does not serve you. Trust instead and let your life flow exactly how it is supposed to. For more information, please visit my website at sandyscarlotta.com. Today's guest is a multi-published author and story-sharing coach, Stormy Lewis. She helps people over 30 squash their excuses and overcome fears of publishing their stories. Stormy has authored Surviving the Storm, Fuel for the Storm, and the Sophie Lee Trilogy, proving time and time again that you can successfully publish a book in six months or less while working full-time and caring for your family. After spending a lifetime with bipolar disorder and ADHD, Stormy went from choosing to break her people-pleasing addiction to hosting a podcast, Bookish Chatter, that helps keep new authors from feeling lost or alone in their journey. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Hey, Stormy, how are you today? I'm fabulous. I'm here with you. Yeah. Love your energy. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) So before I started recording, I I told you how I was so excited to actually get to see your story before I actually got to interview you. So tell everybody about your backstory. Oh, goodness. Um, My name is Stormy, and I am a multi-published international author who helps women push through their excuses and fears to help publish their stories because I know from personal experience how important stories are. I was actually born unknowingly bipolar, and I think I had the first suicidal thought I can remember having was at age five, and it scared me so bad 
Um, I was afraid of myself. I was afraid to tell my parents. I didn't know what was going on. And I would have all these emotional outbursts and things of that nature. And it wasn't until we took psychology in college. I'd been having my ups and downs this entire time and just kind of developed my own bag of tricks to kind of survive what was going on in my head. So for me, books were my saving grace. And so I read a lot. So when I was too manic and I couldn't sleep, I would read a book with a flashlight under the covers until the morning came. And it was also my reasoning for getting out of bed um, and dealing with the chaos in my head and the bullying that came with it and everything else. So when we took psychology and we had a whole chapter on bipolar disorder and I was like, oh my gosh, this is me. But all my teachers were like, no, you know how to behave in a classroom. And I was like, duh, my mom works for a school district. You think that woman would know if I did anything before I ever got home? Are you kidding me? (laughs) So, yeah, I know how to behave in a classroom. And my parents just kept saying, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. And I think because my mom started off as the health aide. And so she was the one that would medicate the kids. And she always said that they were, you know, she'd give them their meds. And then sometimes they couldn't function afterwards because it is difficult treating children. And so she didn't want that for me, I guess. And so I went away to college my freshman year and I got, I I know I think better in the morning. So I always start my classes at 8 a.m. I'd have play practice until really early in the morning the next day. So I ended up becoming manic for like six months straight. And I, my body got physically exhausted and was shutting down And then when you're high, you always crash. Then I took psychology and I I knew that even though nobody else would listen to me, I had an answer for myself and that was good enough. I moved to Vegas to help my sister out and I started kind of going down that dark road again. So I just went to the doctor and I was like, listen, nobody believes me, but I'm telling you, this is what is wrong with me. And that was when I first got diagnosed officially of having bipolar disorder, ADHD, and um, chronic anxiety at 22. Wow. So you went from the age of five until 22 feeling this angst constantly. Oh, yeah. I I couldn't focus. And they, they used to always say just one thing at a time, but I never could do just one thing at a time because the most focused I ever am is when I'm doing a whole bunch of different things at the exact same time. <laughs> and it sounds like it wouldn't work, but it does. It, it quiets the ADHD. I can, I can, you know, function again. But yeah, uh, first day of school, even though I knew what was where I was going and everything, I would be so sick to my stomach. I used to make myself really sick and not be able to like make myself like my mom was just like, just go, you're fine. <laughs> but it was it, it sometimes it was really bad and it was paralyzing. And it was just a matter of finding ways to kind of help myself deal with it until I could get medication and go through therapy and figure out what my triggers were and things like that. So yeah. So what was that dark place that you 
mention briefly? You know, when when I was depressed for like, uh, and I, I can't tell you how long my episodes ever were except for my freshman year in college. And I don't know if it's because it seemed so long it stuck out. So I was manic for like six months, like literally it was so bad. All my friends were like rubbing the back of my back and trying to give me massages. They made me try to listen to water and that just made me have to pee a lot. (laughs) And I was like, I can't. (laughs) And we were trying everything and I was dancing and I would still go to the gym and I would run on the treadmill because I knew I just had to make myself tired enough. But my brain usually would have switched off at some point and it just didn't. And then it crashed. And then it was like walking through life. And I was there. And if you asked me a question, I would respond. But it almost feels like body snatchers. And it feels like the real me is like sitting in like a captain's chair behind my eyes, watching things happen and is gagged and has chains wrapped around them. I can't do anything but just sit and wait until the chains get broken, the fog lifts, and then I'm me again. And that's the best way I've been able to figure out how to describe it to people because I'm, I'm, I'm still in there. And it's not like a split personality kind of thing. It's just... I think because I always characterized when I did have a suicidal thought because I love books so much and I knew that that wasn't what I knew to be the real me, I kind of made it its own character. So it was like evil stormy. So that way I knew it was there, but I wouldn't focus on it too much. And I would just count how many times I would have a suicidal thought. And the higher the number, the more I knew I had to work harder to counteract it. And now as I get older, I know like if I have like three to five, then I'll call the doctor immediately and be like, all right, let's adjust the meds. (laughs) So I'm very, I'm very aware of it. I'm very conscious of it. And I work very hard to just help myself out so I can always be my better version for the world. And I give myself grace on the days that I'm not. And good for you. That's that's that was the hardest lesson to learn is that you know, you you grow up and you feel like you've been cursed almost. And why would, you know, whatever religion you believe in, why would whoever's upstairs would give you something that would make you so horrible when you were nothing but the nicest person on the planet. And you got judged for not being the nicest person on the planet. So it was frustrating because I couldn't get people to see who I really was most of the time. And then the sad thing was, was I was so excited when I had an actual answer. And I told everybody. And then I got fired from all my jobs. And I, people stopped talking to me. They would talk about me and whisper (laughs) while I walked by, but they stopped talking to me all together. And then my parents were just like, this is why you do the don't ask, don't tell. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Because unfortunately, mental illness has the biggest stigma of all. And people base it off of stereotypes that they see on TV and they don't understand that there are people like me that I can 
not only hold down one job, but typically I'm working multiple jobs at once (laughs) and I'm paying rent and my car is paid off. And I was a straight A student all through all my years of college, all through school. I was an honor roll student. I'm always the honor roll student. I mean, like I, I am smart. I work hard. And it was like none of that mattered once they found out I was technically bipolar. I was suddenly unliable. I was a liability. And everything I'd ever done before that point didn't matter at all. And that was the worst part. So what did you do with that emotion and that feeling when you felt like it doesn't matter, all of these accomplishments, that now all of a sudden I've got this label on me and nothing I did even mattered? I just got to the point where I was like, all right, this will just be my dark, dirty secret and nobody will know. And when I'm not having a good day, I'll just have to hide. And I got really good at it. And And when you say hide, what does that mean? Just like stay in my apartment all day, not interact with any more people than I had to. If I went to work, I really kept to myself on those days. People were, I, I mean, I wear my emotions uh, on my sleeve, very, yeah, it's just something that I can't, I can't not do. So people knew if I wasn't smiling, just leave me alone. And I would just keep to myself if I was having a bad day. And, and then I thought this, there's, this isn't okay. There, there's more to life than this. And I was getting older and I was getting tired. <laughs> and I was just to the point I, I am such a huge advocate for, you know, stopping bullying because I bully myself enough in my head. I know what it's like, but I also got it from the outside. And so I really just kind of threw myself into kind of things that I could focus on that would help other people. And I thought that if I could just make them like me for who I actually was, then they might forgive me for when the days that I'm not. So I really kind of, instead of developing a people-pleasing habit, I developed more of an addiction. So I would sacrifice myself at no cost just to have somebody possibly see me for who I was on my good days and maybe forgive me on the days that I wasn't as 100% as they usually see me. And all I learned was I ended up in a toxic, abusive marriage. And it was so irritating, too, because whenever I disagree with somebody, if they know, like both of my ex-husbands would say things like, oh, you're just being bipolar. And nothing infuriated me more (laughs) because I was like. (laughs) Oh, that's like putting gasoline on a fire. Yeah. Well, that's the funny thing. So during all this abusive relationships that I was going through, because I thought I could save them. And I thought if I loved them enough, they would know what love really was supposed to be like. And then they would choose me. And that was never the case. But I also wasn't choosing me. And so they would say things like, oh, you're just being bipolar whenever they didn't like what when I was calling them out. And the funny thing was, is you would think that I would spiral out of control. You would think that I would have gone to the lowest of lows down a black hole and just call it quits. And I actually did the opposite. I never 
felt more sane in my life than when I could stand in those situations and quickly evaluate myself and go, no, just because you don't like what I have to hear doesn't mean that I'm being crazy right now. And I got really calculated. And so when both times when I decided to leave, they didn't know what was coming. I had split my bank account, started a new one, started putting all my money in there, had hid all of my required documents and safety deposit box because both times I decided I was not going to be a statistic. So I was smart enough to walk away, but not smart enough (laughs) to start the cycle again. And after the second time, because the first one was just really more verbal and emotional, but the second time... My ex-husband was military, and when he came back from the war, he was even worse. And, you know, but when he was doing military stuff and he had to be dry, I could see him for the man he could be. And so I really focused on that more so than the rest of it. And then in the beginning, it was, they'll eventually choose me. And then it was, well, I know where the keys are, and I can lock them up and keep society safe. And, you know, being bipolar and knowing some people will say, you know, I'll just go kill myself a thousand times. And you know the person well enough to know that they'll never do it. They're just saying it to get attention. But one day he said it and I thought, oh, my God, please do so we can both be free because I didn't feel like I could leave because all of these other people that didn't want to deal with him kept saying you need to fix this. You need to do this. He stay, He He's so much better with you and all of this other stuff. But when I had that thought, I never had hated myself more in my entire life. And I didn't say it out loud, but it was enough to make me decide that I couldn't do this anymore. And it, I knew at that moment that if I didn't leave this was not going to end well for me. And even after I left, I knew I had to break the cycle or it would not end well for me. And then the world would suffer because I wouldn't be in it to change it. And so I started getting on Groupon and I was trying a whole bunch of different things. And one of them was a yoga class. And the instructor said, hey, we're going to Belize, come join us. And I was like, all right. But she didn't tell me it was a couple's trip. So I showed up and I was like, oh, (laughs) awesome. (laughs) So everybody else was a couple and then there was Stormy. And but she I never felt out of place, not once. And she had told them all about the blog. So every time I turned around, they were like, you got to do this for the blog. And I'd be like, I don't think I need to eat a termite in the middle of the jungle. But if you don't think about it, it really just tastes like a breath mint while you're walking through. You're like, huh, minty fresh. So um, so I wanted and, and I wanted to hold myself accountable. And I was doing a marketing program and it didn't have an internship. So I was like, I wanted to practice what I was learning. And I, I think even then, after my first blog post, I knew this was going to be so much bigger than me. So I turned it into a company. I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I just I just knew it needed to be there and it needed to be established. So I started doing a blog. So I started doing all sorts of things. And while I was in Belize, like I bear crawled and butt scooted down the tallest Mayan temple 
and I'm afraid of heights. So that was pretty big. And wow. I, al- I almost drowned when I was little. And so like even in the shower, I can't stand to have water on my face. So and I went snorkeling. So and so I was just I was like, listen, this I tried this. I really suck at archery. Don't ask me to do it. You'll get hurt. I can't shoot a gun because I found out I'm left hand dominant, but right eye dominant. I don't know how that works, but it makes it very difficult to shoot straight, apparently. (laughs) And I was just telling my story. And I started having people kind of come up to me and say, you know, when I read it, it's just like, I'm telling the story only you're actually doing these things. And I'm like, you can too. I would take myself to date nights. I would do dinner in a movie and sit in the movie theater by myself. That's one of my favorite things to do before COVID. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I found my voice and I learned to love myself for who I was. And, but I still, I still felt like I couldn't talk about it because I knew the consequences of talking about it. And then about 2019, I kind of started leaking out. And even when I wrote, so I had taken all my blog posts and I I started writing, I wrote my first book, Surviving the Storm. So the first two thirds, a lot of it's like blog posts and just me saying, hey, I'm breaking my people pleasing addiction. And then the last third was an insight of what was happening behind closed doors that nobody saw. And even then, I couldn't tell anybody that I was a writer for some reason, because growing up, as much as I loved writing, everybody was like, nobody will read your stuff. You got to know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. And I just got really discouraged about being a writer. So I just didn't. And But I always loved writing. Um, even as a kid, my teachers would be like, we asked for a short story, not a novel. And I'm like, hey, the story tells it the way it wants to. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I took a break. I published two books and still didn't really say I was an author or or anything, but I started kind of vaguely talking about how I had labels and labels didn't define you. They were just a part of who you were and things that happened to you didn't define you, but they were a part of the journey and that was okay. And we didn't need to beat ourselves up for having bad days. And then COVID hit and I was working a travel insurance job, um, customer service. And so I was the first person after the phone tree where people felt the need to share their anxiety and anger and everything else. And I said, I cannot, I've got to find a balance. I will not survive this job. (laughs) And a friend said I had to start writing again. And I agreed. So we tossed around some ideas and I laughed and said, you know, my mom said I should write fiction because I draw people in because I write like I talk, basically. And uh, she asked me if I had an idea. And I told her about the idea that I wrote in middle school. And that became the Sophie Lee trilogy that is out and about and growing as we speak. (laughs) Sophie Lee trilogy. So talk about that. So I didn't have an imaginary friend when I was growing up, but I always had Sophie without having a name for her, but it was really just myself. (laughs) I always wanted to have my own James, which is like the perfect guy that just absolutely falls in love with you for who you are and doesn't care what's going on around you. He'll always love you. 
And I was always running from bad guys. And I don't know if that was just me running from myself or <laughs> what. But these were the scenes that I would act out when I was playing by myself. And so I wrote it in probably seventh grade, I think, seventh or eighth grade. And the kids really liked it, but an adult didn't and tossed it and it was gone. And so I was just, I was laughing and I was like, you know, I, I wrote this and I, I never really finished it. And I'd kind of like to see where it ended. And she was like, yes, you have to write this. So I wrote a couple of pages and then a, another friend read it and he said, oh my God, this is a, a great trilogy. And I was like, it's three pages. I don't have a book. What are we talking about a trilogy for? <laughs> are you kidding me right now? But then the idea was in my head and I just, the challenge of it, I don't know. I just couldn't get rid of it. So Sophie is a girl that even from the first page, she is often running from the bad guys and, and you don't know who they are. They're just a, a team of people in black that have guns and are trying to get her. And she gets hit by a car because she saves James and she suddenly has amnesia. So the key is the first book and it's about Sophie trying to get her memories back so she can figure out who the heck she is and why these people are after her. So she learns that her parents were murdered when she was about 10 and her dad was a scientist and her mom was a special ops and they used to work for this man that always had a cane and so he couldn't remember his name or who he was and but it, so she just calls him the man with the cane now i will tell you that during this time the og storm chaser my nana we found out she had cardiovascular dementia. She didn't have a long timeline left. And so I kind of created this dream realm where Sophie's parents, even though they're dead, they can interact with her when she sleeps in her dreams. So it's kind of a way for Sophie to still have her loved ones without, you know, really having them physically, but they're always with her and they're always guiding her still, even after all these years. So you go through her journey of trying to figure out who she is, her backstory, and this key that everybody wants to find. So they find out they they find it in the end of the second book and or at the end of the first book. And the second book picks it up from there. Now the protector actually comes out May 14th. It is kind of interesting, too. So as Nana got worse, this dream realm grew. So there's a council of death that determines the rules, and you have to follow them or you can be banished. And Sophie's figuring out, because everybody else noticed she could hear better and she could run faster and she could do a lot of things that a normal person wouldn't be able to do. So the second book focuses on finding out how she was genetically altered and by who. And by the end of it, you find out who the man in the cane is. So Neat. So is that considered fantasy or paranormal or what category is that in? Well, and that's the thing. Right now, it's kind of it, the original started with a mystery suspense thriller. But now that this dream world continues to grow, I think it, it started to switch into fantasy. Although I was telling my parents some of the ideas that I had for the third book. And my mom was like, when did this turn into sci-fi? And I'm like, hey, story goes where it wants to go. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. 
<laughs> so the first one originally is just, it's really under a suspenseful thriller mystery at the moment. But as the dream realm grows, I think I'm going to have to put it into like a fantasy or a paranormal. Hey, like you said, the story goes where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So have you started writing the third book yet? Uh, it's writing itself in my head. I'm trying to be really good. So I'm, I'm doing the promotion for The Protector. And in the process, see, this just goes to show you never know how much your story is going to inspire somebody, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. I wasn't reading nonfiction when I was a kid. I was reading fiction and that was keeping me going. Well, when I started writing my first, the first book of the trilogy, my dad started really asking a lot of questions and he was really getting into it. And it was really kind of nice because he takes a lot of medication too. And we were both avid readers. And my mom told me that he hadn't read a book in 10 years just because he can't hold the focus um, because of a lot of medication he's on. So he just doesn't read because it's too depressing. And my book was the first book he'd picked up in 10 years. Wow. So he read it. And then he would start <laughs> texting me. Well, what about what if she did this? What if he what if this happened? <laughs> and so and then my mom got involved. And so they became my creative writing team. And my dad does first round edits. So he's kind of my editing team. But then when all was said and done after the first book, he was asking me how I was promoting it and things like that. And then one day before I knew it, he was like, so if I asked you to help me publish a book, could you do that? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so I created a monster and I've been working on my dad's first edit books, but he has already finished writing his second one. <laughs> and I am no longer just publishing two books this year. I'm publishing four because two for me and two for him. <laughs> but what a great way to connect with your dad. Oh, it's been so much fun. Um, I'm always a daddy's girl anyway, and we did have a lot of in common. And it's funny because our sense of humor is very much the same. We think we're hilarious. Mom, not so much. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> but, like, um, you know, it's funny because, like, he'll correct my writing because we're the same way. I could read my own writing over and over again and never catch nearly as much as if I read somebody else's. So that's why exactly. I, I give it to him and he reads it, he corrects it. But now that I'm correcting his, I, I keep giggling and going, oh my gosh, he writes just like I do. <laughs> so well, I always tell everybody, even if you're just sending an email, that's an important one. Like have somebody oh, else right. read it because you can't, you can't pick up your own typos. Well, no, because your brain is forever auto-fixing it for you. So you won't see a lot of the small grammatical errors in your own writing because you know what it's supposed to say. So your brain automatically fixes it for you. Right. Have you ever seen those little quizzes that people post on Facebook and it's missing a lot of letters and they're like, can you read this? And you can. Like you, your oh, brain automatically with, knows yeah. what it says. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm a pattern person. That's kind of my, you know, rain man. He could drop and count how many toothpicks. I can look at something and very quickly see why the pattern's off. So, like, I'm really good at, like, spacing and things like that. Yeah, it's funny because I, my, fir my rough draft is so ridiculous because I'm trying to type as fast as I'm thinking. So, I, 
I'm pronoun happy because I know who's talking. I don't care if you do. I just need to get it out. (laughs) And, you know, I'll use the same phrases over and over again. And then he'll get it. And I'll be like, okay, remember, this is the ADHD version. So he knows it's going to be pronoun happy. And, And he likes to make fun of me. So like the first one, sad was a lot. Because, you know, she'd lost so much that sad was a word that I used over and over again and had to pull out the thesaurus and go, okay, it has another way. Um, For the protector, eyes were always dropping to the floor. And he was like, wow, it's really hard to walk around with so many eyeballs on the floor, you know, because he's smart aleck like that. And I'm like, knock it off. (laughs) I'll fix it. (laughs) But he does the same things when he writes. So it's kind of fun now because I get to go back to him and go, okay, grandpa, (laughs) you're using this way too many times. (laughs) That's awesome. So I want to bring this full circle back to your, you know, bipolar diagnosis. And I've heard that so many people that are on medication for this type of diagnosis end up going off their meds. Have Uh, you ever experienced that? (laughs) So the problem with mania is, or just taking meds, because when you start to feel normal and you start to feel good, sometimes certain meds can even kind of make you start going manic. And the problem with mania is, is that you feel like you're invincible and you feel like the top of the world. So the voices switch to, you know, telling you, and I say voices, it's not schizophrenia by any means. It's yourself talking to you basically and saying, you know, when you're depressed, it's usually like the world would be a better place without you kind of version. When you're mania, it's like you can do anything. You don't need medication, things like that. So if people, that's typically why you hear people go off their meds is because they were balanced. But the thing is, and this is what a lot of people don't understand, is that your brain's chemical makeup is forever changing. So the older I get with my hormones changing, that affects my brain. But Bipolar meds are just like any other meds. If you take an allergy medicine and it stops working for you, you have to switch meds or you have to change the dose. Bipolar meds or any kind of mental illness meds are the same, but your brain is forever changing. So it typically happens more often than, say, allergy season or something like that. And so that's why some people will get to the point where they're like, oh, I feel fine. And they they convince themselves because that's the thoughts going through their head that they're, they're fine and they don't need medication. Now, there's different extremes. Everybody's different. And I can tell you that the way my brain is wired, I don't do well on just mood stabilizers or antidepressants. I have to have the anti-seizure meds mixed in because the way my brain waves work, they need the more intense version. Some people are a lighter version of bipolar disorder. So just a mood stabilizer alone will work. Some people have to take a cocktail and that sucks because I've been there and done that. And the hardest thing for us is you've seen commercials and you know that 
to cure one thing, there's 8 million side effects. And that's right. another reason why people go off their meds is they don't like the side effects. But it's really about finding one that works good for you. And I've, I've, I've been medicated since I was 22. I will tell you I'm super sensitive. So a lot of things I can't take and I can't take ever again. Before I got married the first time, I was taking Envega and for my bipolar disorder, and it caused my prolactate cells to go up so high that my body thought it was pregnant. So I was a virgin, and I looked like I was six months pregnant. And the day before my wedding, I started lactating, and I was like, oh, my gosh, what is going on? <laughs> oh, my gosh, I've never heard that before. Yeah, so my body thought I was literally pregnant because your prolactate cells are around 30, and mine was 90 and so Whoa. the day I got married, I luckily had a corset because my wedding I wouldn't have had a wedding dress to wear. And I had to wear a nursing bra and pads under my dress so I didn't leak through. And then I had to go to the doctor and the doctor was like, oh, yeah, that's your meds. So now I know that I am the 1%. So whenever a new meg comes out, I'm always like, all right, <laughs> what is this 1%? Because I am your 1%. You know, some things make you shake and it's noticeable to other things. The shaking I can do, the sleeping for 12 hours, like Seroquel, I cannot. I mean, there's certain things, but in the end, I know that I'm to the point in my life that because it's it's kind of like dementia, it can get worse as you get older. And I'm to the point where, yes, I do require some sort of medication. I still do a lot of things to help myself out in the meantime. And I just take care of myself. So if I'm feeling down, I make sure to exercise more. If I'm manic, I need to make sure that I take a sleeping pill because I know if I don't sleep after three days in a row, I'm it's going to go down a dangerous road for me. I need to make sure to force myself to sleep. So I will have to take a sleeping pill just to get one night's sleep. And then I kind of balance out. Ironically, the COVID vaccine set me off. And I hmm. couldn't figure out why I was feeling kind of down. And then this last time for the second shot, because I guess it can cause your hormones to get off. But the second time, I actually, for 24 hours, did what that's, they call rapid cycling. And it's when you're so depressed and so manic at the exact same time. So I was bawling, hating myself and laughing hysterically. Like, it's scary to watch because you're like, oh, my God, what is wrong with you? And I, after two hours, was like, this is not right. So I increased, I called the doctor and said, listen, I think I, I take such a low dose of like Lexapro for the antidepressant because as I get older, I used to be mostly manic, more than depressive side. But as I get older, I seem to be switching. So I asked her if I could take a whole pill instead of a half. And I was fine by the morning. I was just really exhausted. Because that's the thing, too. A lot of people don't realize how exhausting when you are off it can become. But... A lot of things are based off of, you know, the news articles of Britney Spears shaving her head and people portrayed being super psychotic on TV and things like that. But there's so many of us that 
you know, I go to therapy regularly because I know I process things better when I talk things out, which is why I'm such a talker now. I do my meds, I do what I need to do, and I function really well. And I just got to the point where too many people, whether you're in like I am, where you can function a lot or you can't, we need to talk about it. Because too many people make assumptions, too many people get fired that are hard workers, too many people feel bad about themselves for something they can't control. Exactly. So what advice can you give for somebody, you know, who's struggling with this? And, and the second part to that is, what, what is life like for you on the other side? you know, and how you keep yourself positive because you're doing so many amazing things. So, so what can you, what can you tell the listeners about that? You know, in all honesty, always don't think you have to do it by yourself. I, I love my therapist. I talk to her regularly. She's really funny because she's always like, I don't feel like I'm helping you. But half the time, because most of the time I just get on there and I just talk for a whole hour and I just tell her about my day and it just feels really good. And and while I'm talking, I'm processing things and I'm actually working them out in my head. So I don't necessarily need somebody, but just being able to have somebody else to talk to. So if you feel like you need help, then get the help. If you don't have insurance, there are state programs that can take care of you. Don't ever think you have to do it all by yourself. I am very aware of what triggers me and what doesn't. And in the beginning, I had to make a list and I had to kind of keep track of when I really felt like I was out, you know, getting too much. Because sometimes you just feed off of other people's emotions. And I would walk away and be like, I'm really not that angry. And that didn't upset me at all. But I just got caught up in the mob, you know, emotional roller coaster. So find out what triggers you. I know that I have to have a steady schedule. I cannot have a job that switches back and forth. I cannot work a graveyard job anymore. And what triggers you in the very beginning may not trigger you down the road, and that's okay. It's about looking at it and figuring out, okay, if I'm off, what change that might be the cause? Because also, even when you are working with experts, the more you can convey what you recognize helps them even more because they're not with you every day. So I really got good at just really always monitoring myself Now I can tell you that I knew when people started getting really negative and were really upset, uh, I I don't watch the news. I turn it off. I got off Facebook because Facebook was not a positive environment for me. I hung out on Instagram because there's actually a ton of supportive people there. And I started focusing on what made me feel good. For me, that was writing and watching old 80s and 90s movies and TV shows and listening to music. And I kind of put myself in a bubble and I just blocked everything out because when the pandemic hit, my anxiety got even worse because I'm fine being by myself. But when you tell me I have to be isolated, that doesn't seem to set well. (laughs) Of course not. Everybody had issues. Yeah. (laughs) And still do. (laughs) So I do things like I have white Christmas lights all around my living room. And while I'm working in my living room, because that's where my office is, it just brings me calmness. I have candles. I always shut down 
because I know with my ADHD, I have a hard time falling asleep. So I shut everything off. I stop, you know, working at about 6.37. And for me, what works is watching something I don't have to think about too much on TV right before I go to bed. And then I listen to Doxy. He has a whole bunch of like meditative um, things on YouTube that you can listen to. So some people's advice may work for you. It may not. It's more important that you figure out what sets you off and what makes you feel better. And as you learn what makes you feel better, test things out. Keep growing your list of what makes you feel better. So no matter how bad you're feeling, you'll always have your go-tos on how to feel better. I love it. I love it. So where can people find your books? They are all on Amazon, although, you, like you said, I'm doing many things. I'm actually starting a publishing company. So right now, they're just on Amazon. You can find them through the website, which is ChasingStormy, and that's stormywithani.com. And all the links are there. It'll take you to there. And you can see the book trailers. Um, I have some, like, movie trailers for the books that are pretty awesome that are on there. Um, and you can watch everything. I am totally transparent on Instagram under the story sharing guru. That's where I hang out the most and try to help as many people as possible from there. I love it. I love it. Stormy, thank you so much. I love how vulnerable you have been throughout the last uh, 43 minutes we've been <laughs> talking. And um, I think it's amazing. Aww, so yeah. Best of luck to you, and I'm going to be following you on Instagram for sure. Well, I am following you now, too. I, I love the whole premises of this, and I'm glad that you are helping other people share their stories. So thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care, Stormy. Bye. Bye-bye. Wow. Talk about being vulnerable. And uh, I was telling Stormy after the interview that normally I talk a little bit more, but she she was just on a roll and was such a great guest to just really go there and and share her story. And I just so appreciate that. So once again, you can find her books on Amazon.com. Her website is ChasingStormy.com. And you can follow her on Instagram at StorySharingGuru. Again, that's on Instagram. So thank you, everybody, for joining me today. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Happiness Solved, Climbing 100 Steps, you can find information on my website at sandyscarlotta.com or purchase the book in softcover, hardcover, or Kindle version on Amazon. And you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Coach Sandy Scarlotta. So thank you once again. And as always, I hope that you and your family are staying safe and healthy and that your life is filled with peace, joy, and happiness. Take care, everyone. <laughs>